Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read a page of The Wise Man's Fear and then talk about it. This is page 621. On the third day, Hespi decided her leg could stand a little walking. So we had to decide what was going to come with us and what would get left behind. It wasn't going to be as difficult as it might have been. Most of the bandit's equipment had been destroyed by the lightning, the falling tree, or exposure to the storm. But there were still valuables to be salvaged from the ruined camp. We had been prevented from making a good search of the leader's tent as it had been crushed beneath one of the huge branches of the fallen oak. Over two feet thick, the fallen limb was larger than most trees in its own right. However, on the third day, we finally managed to hatch it enough of it away so we could roll it off the wreckage of the tent. I was anxious to get a closer look at the leader's body as something about him had been nagging my memory ever since I saw him step from the tent. And in a more worldly vein, I knew his chainmail was worth at least a dozen talents. But we didn't find any sign of the leader at all. It gave us a bit of a puzzle. Martin had only found one set of tracks leading away from the camp, those of the escaped sentry. None of us could guess where the leader had gone. To me, it was a puzzle and an annoyance, as I had been wanting to get a clearer look at his face. Dayton and Hespi believed he'd simply escaped in the chaos following the lightning, maybe using the stream to avoid leaving tracks. Martin, however, grew distinctly uneasy when we didn't find the body. He murmured something about demons and refused to go near the wreckage. I thought he was being a superstitious fool, but I won't deny that I found the missing body more than slightly unnerving as well. Inside the ruined tent, we found a table, a cot, a desk, and a pair of chairs, all shattered and useless. In the ruined desk, there were some papers I would have given a good deal to read, but they had spent too long in the wet, and the ink had run. There was also a heavy hardwood box, slightly smaller than a loaf of bread. Alvarin's family crest was enameled on the cover, and it was locked tight. Both Hespi and Martin admitted they had a little skill at opening locks, and since I was curious about what was inside, I let them have a go, so long as they didn't damage the lock. Each of them took a long turn at it, but neither met with any success. After about 20 minutes of careful fiddling, Martin threw up his hands. I can't find the trick of it, he said as he stretched, pressing his hands against the small of his back. I might as well have a try myself, I said. I'd hoped one of them would end the page. My name is Nick. I'm Jordana. I'm Jeremy. Now, Judge, if I may, I- I'm-, I'm a simple country lawyer, but if these... Bandits have been waylaying tax collectors all this time. Surely there'd be more than a single box full of the ill-gotten gains. What's more, Judge, why would the box that the bandits are using to store their stolen treasure from multiple tax collectors have the mayor's family sigil on it? Isn't it more likely, Judge, that the box came from the mayor's family as a sort of payment for services rendered? No. (laughs) (laughs) and i'll tell you why simple country lawyer the box was obviously stolen from those self-same tax collectors who i'm sure all have the seal of the mayor whose authority they rely upon all over all their shit shouldn't there be more than one of these boxes then if that's the case if you if you're a bandit, thank you, counsel. thank you i had the same question no 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 If you're a tax collector, you carry one box that's big enough to collect, you know, more than all you could possibly need Uh, because gold is heavy. Um, And if the taxes are being paid in in gold royals, as we learned that they are, uh, then that's what you carry. These bandits don't need to have multiple boxes. They only need the one and they can just cram all the gold into it because they're not going anywhere with it. 
Okay, wait. That makes sense. That makes sense. Just just one more thing. Uh, if you're collecting taxes from small folk, why would they have gold royals to supply? Well, you probably take it in kind and convert it into royals to the local money changers. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Oh, uh, one last thing. Just one more thing. Please indulge me, but then I'll go back to Mrs. Country Lawyer. Uh, <laughs> where would you get a money changer at a town like Crossin, for example, which is the biggest town for many, many miles around? Seems to me, Judge, uh, really mixing my characters here. Seems <laughs> to me, Judge, that uh, there's nowhere to get a gold royal anywhere nearby. Eh, I'm sure they probably, like, like most merchants or accountants, they probably have a supply on hand to make change in the, in the towns that are too small to be able to, to do that for them. Okay. Let me paint you. A all, picture. Right, all I'm saying is I yeah, want to do ahead. it this time. Simple country lawyer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Let me paint you a picture. I Jordana, I'm a tax collector and I am traveling with my tax collector buddies who are, I don't know, my protectorate, I guess, like whoever tax collectors travel with. And I've got my big box. And I'm going around and let's say people have gold royals for whatever reason. And they're giving me gold royals and they put it in the box. And then uh, Nick, the thief, is like, oh, hey, I'm going to I'm going to rob this this tax collector. And I'm like, oh, no, Nick, the thief. I'm so scared. Please have my my tax collector box. And uh, and then I run away. Um and then the next day, Jeremy, the tax collector, who's coming from the other direction and also has his own tax collector box, because there's no way that if Jordana and Jeremy were coming from different places that they would have the same tax collector box, they would each have their own tax collector box. So Jeremy's using the same road, walking along with his tax collector box, and Nick the Thief comes and he's like, oh, hey, is he going to bring the box from yesterday and be like, hey, Jeremy, the tax collector, can you just add your stuff to this box that I already have? No, he's just going to take Jeremy's box. He's going to have more than one box. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I, I don't want to spend the whole episode litigating this, even though I do like the character of simple country lawyer Columbo. All I'm saying is I do think there's something hinky about this whole thing, and I think that there's something hinky about the only box of money they find being labeled with the mayor's sigil and in all in solid gold royals rather than like piecemeal, the kind of thing you would get from a tax collector. I admit that I am nursing a theory that the, uh, the bandits are, as Jeremy likes to say, a limited hangout or possibly, no, I'm using that wrong. They're a false flag. No, uh, I'm inclined to think correct. that this, Okay, well, they're a limited handout, hangout, false flag. I think that they are, um, they have been put to this by the mayor or someone in the mayor's orbit. Uh, and it's like they're not just a bunch of bandits who sprung up uh, of their own volition. They have been put up to this and they've been paid to do this. Um, I think that kind of um, explains the like perfunctory force that is sent to go after them. Uh, and I also think it explains the state of the, the box that they find. I suspect that the papers that were waterlogged are very, were very important. And perhaps if they had managed to clear the tree sooner, they would have found some proof. Hmm. Martin is a smart cookie. I think Martin was already inclined to be afraid of this, the bandit leader because Martin saw something supernatural in him when he shot him in the leg and he didn't, feel any pain and just pulled it out and so martin is of course right to be uh afraid and suspicious 
of this character. And he's also right that he fully just like disappeared. I wonder if Haliax was in the tent at the time, because the last time the Chandrian escaped, they like went into Haliax's cloak, right? Or like Haliax extended his cloak and took them somewhere else. There's two chairs in there. Maybe he was hanging out with Haliax at the time. Mm. But don't we see the bandit leader make a run for it? Oh, yeah, he runs into no, the tent. No, he goes back into the tent. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Hmm. Interesting. Of course, now we're way past tents. Hmm. <laughs> this, I mean, you, Nick, have been consistently comparing this adventure to the sort of thing a D&D party would do. And this is the thing after you've killed all the bad guys where you rifle through their stuff to, to find goodies. This is this is the quest reward. They find uh, they find a an intriguing locked chest. Yeah, and of course, Quoth is disappointed not to get to loot the the, the boss's armor. Yeah, the boss is you like know you love getting armor. the boss's armor. Yeah, yeah, it's like an Elden Ring. When you kill a boss, you then get their you get their suit, mm. you get their stuff. Uh, sadly, Quoth does not get uh, Bandit Lord's chainmail hauberk. Mm-hmm. Anything else you want to talk about on this one? I'm good. It's a, you know, it's a small thing, but we retroactively learned that they've been chipping away at the tree. They've been chipping away at the tree. Yeah, they've been hatcheting it like oh, oh, piecemeal right. over the last three to days. Make, to, to use yeah. for wood. Yeah. Oh, and so it's also blocking the bandit leader's tent. Gotcha, gotcha. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, so it's not like they just like were lazing around for three days, which is kind of how it sounded. But I, they've been kind of working at clearing it, which you know, I, is interesting. I think they've been doing a bit of both, right? Like obviously, some of them are are injured, and they've you know their job is done, so they can afford to take their ease for a little bit and sort of in a leisurely fashion uh, loot the bandits' uh, camp. They don't have any reason to believe that you know someone's going to come looking for them or anything, so they can take their time. We have a letter today. From uh, someone who has written under another name in the past, but now has signed themselves a Serbic speaker. The letter is entitled, Why Didn't the Sitha Kill Kvoth? Dear Wage of the Pinned, I am curious what you think about Kvoth getting away with talking to the Cathay. Bast claims that the Sitha kill anyone who manages to come in contact with the Cathay, and he is very surprised that they didn't catch Kvoth. He's also very surprised that Kvoth doesn't know this, given that he knows some other fey secrets. Further, he thinks if the Sitha knew that Chronicler had written about Quoth's encounter with the Cathay, they'd want to destroy the book and kill all three of them. What do you think is going on? Bonus question. If you were the Cathay, which one person would you want to talk to and what would you tell them to wreak havoc in the real world? Sorry if this is too dark and feel free to skip it. Signed, Acerbic Speaker. I don't, I don't remember enough about... to, to answer this question. Yeah, I think we'll we'll have to come back to that. I really I really don't know what to make of it either. Like I think it speaks to a larger conspiracy and I think it speaks to the fact that Quoth is being manipulated and like possibly even his trip to the Fae is part of a, a bigger design. Um like maybe, you know, what if in the grand scheme this this trip into the woods was meant to lure Quoth to Felurian so that he'd get sucked into Fae. Or as we so aptly put it previously, sucked off into Fae. Like there's, you know, like, obviously the, the Chandrian are involved, right? Because now we have Cinder here. And as part of this trip into the Eld, Quoth eventually meets the Cathay, 
which as we have been told is a, a great uh, moment of catastrophe. So like, and like, why wouldn't the Sitha be there unless there was a larger conspiracy to make sure that they weren't there when Kvoth arrived. So I don't know. I'm talking myself into a, a crackpot theory here and now as we go, but I feel like we don't have enough information, but I do feel that it's with regard to uh, a wider conspiracy that's, that's going on. And like, maybe the goal is to write the story, right? Like we also know that the Chandrian are invested in stories or at least we, we have reason to believe. So like, what if the reason is actually to get Quoth to write the story? What if that's the long game? Uh, what if that's the goal of, of the Cathay or of Quoth or of time loop Quoth who's manipulating himself to get the story written? Ah. If I may offer a more mundane answer, I think it's possible that the Sitha don't exist, that they are like a, a storybook fable, or that they do exist and they just haven't caught up to Quoth yet. But they were supposed to, uh, I mean, true, that's possibly it. Maybe they're hunting him in the frame narrative. Maybe that's what he's waiting for. But was Bass says they're supposed to shoot dead anything that approaches the Cathay's tree. Right, which would imply like that they're standing around guarding it. And I think because Quoth doesn't meet them, we can assume that's not true. Yeah, or they were like on a break or something. Yeah, they yeah, they were smoke. out back having a smoke. Yeah, yeah. There was a guard shift change. Quoth put a mm-hmm. box on his head and he walked between them. <laughs> oh, it's probably nothing. And as to the second oh. question, I feel like the real world is already, like the Cathay has already stirred the pot in the real world. Um, I really can't imagine like what I would say and to who in order to cause the most havoc. I feel like I have, uh, shall we say, um, laser focused locuses of uh people you could say remove or adjust their behavior in order to improve the world markedly but i cannot think uh of who i would want to uh or what i would want to catheifies to make things worse because uh the last few years have really kind of gone about as badly as they possibly could have like more than i could have imagined um not for me personally, I'm doing fine, but just like more, you know, broadly, uh, it's been, it's been rough. <laughs> so, sorry, was the, was the question like, what do you think the Cathaya could say to someone to make the world worse? Like our world worse? Yeah, I'll, I'll repeat it. If you were the Cathay, what, which, if you were the Cathay, which one person would you want to talk to and what would you tell them to wreak havoc in the real world? See, because this reflects maybe like a difference of understanding of what the Cathay does and how it works. My understanding of what the Cathay does is it, whatever it tells you is about making your life worse, not the world, like as a whole, objectively worse. Like it's going to make your life worse. I, I, my understanding, and I think this is pretty clearly said, is that it causes the most like harm possible to everybody. Like it makes the whole world worse. And that's why the Sitha exists, because any interaction with the Cathay is a net negative for mm. everybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, if that is how it works, then I'm kind of with my co-host here. Like, I mean, I guess the, the, the trite answer is, you know, uh, you, when Donald Trump is reelected in 2024, you tell him that like, you know, someone else with the nuclear codes made fun of his, of his hair and called him a pussy. And that's, that's game. Like he, he ends the world in nuclear fire. Um, 
But I suppose a counter argument could be made that like not enough people would suffer then because we'd all just die in an instant. Uh, so it's kind of a toss up. I mean, we might not die. We might just have like nuclear poisoning. Yeah, like poisoning. those the There's survivors will more. envy the dead, but will there be enough survivors that you couldn't cause a different calamity where more people would be alive to suffer and thus on balance things would be worse? Yeah, I don't really want to think about it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Listener, thanks for that very cheery, thought-provoking question. Yeah, apocalypse is is a, a cultural thing. Apocalypse is constant. There, apocalypses happen all the time. There was an apocalypse uh, in uh, 2001 uh, in the West. There was another apocalypse just recently when um, the coronavirus hit. Uh, because the apocalypse is not like the end of life, because life continues no matter what even human life, but the apocalypse is the end of uh, a status quo, of a, a way of being. So uh, are we living in a post-apocalyptic that... world? Yes, we are that... always. All, all ways of life are post-apocalyptic, if not like for ourselves, which I'd argue we are, but like um, for indigenous people, for example, in Canada, mm. th- this is a post-apocalyptic world because in a very real way, that world ended. Um, so apocalypses are cultural, in my opinion. I don't, I don't hold with the idea that there's like a Mad Max style uh, nuclear fire that annihilates civilization. Because even in Mad Max, like civilization continues in some way or other. But um, well, apocalypses are are cultural, well, and they are signal the end of a a paradigm. I mean, that's that's one way to look at it. I do subscribe to the idea that some things are just going to like wipe out the entire human race single handedly. That's also an apocalypse. But I guess the real question is if an apocalypse happens and there's no one around to experience the post apocalypse, is it an apocalypse? Oh, ah, well, listeners chew on that until tomorrow's episode. And hopefully it'll be less of a downer on page (laughs) of the, Wind. Wind. Wind.